Ever wonder what history's most famous and infamous people would say if you asked them for their side of the story? Well, this is it. You're listening to Hindsight, a new podcast by Al Jazeera. I'm Charles Dance. This is a dramatized series based on historical events that resurrects some of the world's most memorable figures. You've heard of them, but now it's time to hear from them. It's 2012, almost exactly one year after the Arab Spring, a series of mass pro-democracy protests across the Middle East and North Africa. In Egypt, the demands of the people were simple. Overthrow their president, Hosni Mubarak, who they accused of abusing his power during his 30-year rule. Mubarak deposed Egypt. But Hosni Mubarak is gone, and Egypt is preparing to begin again. The Egyptian people were successful. Mubarak was ousted. Fourteen months after Mubarak stepped down, the presidential candidates for Egypt's first democratic election were officially announced. Among the candidates is Mohamed Morsi, representing the Freedom and Justice Party, the political wing of the Muslim Brotherhood. Except by then, most people knew that Morsi wasn't the party's first choice. The party's initial pick, Kairat el-Shatter, had been disqualified from running only days before. To avoid forfeiting, the party put up Morsi instead, a man the media referred to as the spare tire. In this episode of Hindsight, we hear how a former awkward engineering professor became Egypt's first democratically elected president. This is the story of the unlikely leader's meteoric rise and fall based on documented events and his own words. Thank you. Thank you, my brothers. I promise to serve the party faithfully and to the best of my abilities. This is indeed a day of celebration. My God, the understudy is being called to the main stage. Me, Mohammed Morsi. President of Egypt? I never expected that Khairat would have to drop out of the race and go on such a technicality. You can't run for president if you've been to jail in the last six years. Who ever heard of a rule like that? But Khairat is the money man. He knew everyone and everyone knew him through his furniture and textile business. He's popular with everybody. Muslims, Christians, all Egyptians. Me? What does anyone know about me? I tend to keep to myself. Now they want me to be the one to run for president? Dear God, I'm just an ordinary man. I was born in Sharqiya in northern Egypt in 1951. My parents didn't have much money. Thank God for school keeping us kids busy. I remember my dad used to give me rides to school on the back of a donkey. 
I was one of five kids, but I got the best grades. At 18, I was accepted into Cairo University. University changed my life. Doesn't that for everyone? I felt alive, sharing and debating my ideas with other engineering students, meeting people and embracing new ideals. Members of the Muslim Brotherhood would come to our campus. They talked to everyone about their mission and their work. So, tell me, what is your organization all about? I had no idea that they did so much social and community work. They had even built pharmacies and hospitals and schools in areas like the one I came from. Ah, oh, yes, yes, of course, of course. I know the community. <laughs> I am from that community. <laughs> yes. The president of Egypt insisted on taking every resource away from the people. And the Muslim Brotherhood was doing everything it could to put some resources back into local communities. In return, they wanted to be able to spread the good values and morals of Islam to the people without being punished or exiled, or worse. There is very much to consider here. But honestly, I was working so hard to stay on top of my studies, I didn't have any time for extracurricular activities. Morsi graduated with honors from Cairo University and earned a master's degree in engineering metallurgy. Not only was he a recent graduate, Morsi was also a newly married man. He had fallen in love with Nagla, his 17-year-old first cousin. In 1978, when he was young, in love, and on the verge of starting a family, Morsi received the academic invitation of a lifetime. A scholarship opportunity to pursue a Ph.D. in materials science at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. California. I still don't know what to think. I will say, though, that the weather in California is better than the sweltering heat of Egypt in the summer. Oof! And where else in the world will you see the country's future entrusted to a former film and TV star? Unbelievable. The school itself was decent. I worked hard while Negla was home with the kids. We were in California for seven years. My two eldest children were even born there. But America could never be my home. Sometimes I would sit out on the quad at the university to eat my lunch, shocked by what I saw. Men and women lazing about in their skimpy clothing and all the students casually touching and rolling around on the grass together as if nobody could see them. I kept wanting to scream at them, control yourselves. This is an institution of higher learning. There are reports that Morrissey may have even served a stint at NASA during his brief time in the United States. But by 1985, Morsi was done with the U.S. and moved himself and his family back to Egypt. He got a job heading up the engineering department at Zagazig University, a job he loved so much he kept it for 25 years. Morsi's return to Egypt was soon followed by his formal entry into political life and the Muslim Brotherhood. The Brotherhood was banned in Egypt for a long time. So when it came to government representation... 
we had to run as independents. The more seats we could fill, the better. By 2000, I wanted to do my part too. Even though I had my hands full at the university, I knew I had the talent to deliver a compelling speech. I was elected to the People's Assembly and spent those five years making my values known. The police have too much control in our streets. Innocent people, innocent people are being arrested. And for what? I argued for things I believed in, like limiting the police's powers to arrest and placing tighter restrictions on entertainment and indecent content. Nothing I was demanding was in any way unreasonable. Morsi rose through the ranks in the Muslim Brotherhood and served as an independent MP in the group's parliamentary bloc. Over that period, he steadily grew more strict and hardline in his views. An especially good example? His epic, if somewhat unusual, rant over 9-11. Yes, a lot of people probably think that the Brotherhood is made up of hardline conservative ideologues. But we are smart men. We're organizers and mobilizers. After September 11, 2001, I was enraged when the Americans immediately painted all Muslims with the same brush as the attackers of the Twin Towers. They had no proof to suggest anything of that kind. I don't just want a legal and judicial inquiry into the events of that day. I wanted there to be a proper inquiry. As an engineer and doctor in metallurgical sciences, I believe that there is no feasible way that two planes could cause the damage that occurred on that day. When you tell me that the plane hit the tower like a knife and butter, you're insulting my intelligence. How did those planes cut through steel like that? To incur damage of that scale, one would need more than two planes. But this we can certainly agree on. What happened on that day? was horrific, and a tragedy to lose so many innocent lives. Few know whether members of the Brotherhood commended Morsi for these statements at the time, but Morsi's behavior didn't seem to ruffle any feathers. In fact, Morsi was often lauded for his powerful performances during speeches and public addresses. He became especially known for his commentaries on local affairs and his criticism of Egypt's then-president, Hosni Mubarak. I still remember that speech I made in Parliament after that tragic and unnecessary Al-Ayat train accident back in 2002. I stood up at the podium, and I let the other MPs know exactly what I thought. Thirteen and a half kilometers. The time was about eight minutes. Only eight minutes! Within those eight minutes, the seven carriages were alight. Then the wooden seats caught fire. Metal heats up and the temperatures rose to almost 1,539 degrees. The third-class train was packed with people going home for Eid al-Adha, when an explosion set fire to the cafeteria and turned the train into a speeding inferno. It burned through seven carriages and killed more than 380 people. This is what Mubarak thought of the Egyptian people. Disposable. He refused to invest in Egypt's infrastructure. 
He refused to protect his people. I said, down with Mubarak. Mubarak had indeed failed to invest in Egypt's infrastructure and rail accidents were common. But in later years, Morsi's impassioned speech proved to be just that. Criticisms delivered with gusto. How do we know this to be true? Because history tends to repeat itself, and often with a hefty helping of irony. Ten years later, in 2012, Morsi himself would be criticized for the same failure to protect the Egyptian people when a school bus full of children were killed in a collision with a speeding train. But his first foray into politics as an MP came to an end in 2005, which probably suited him just fine. He was far more comfortable as an activist than a politician in the limelight. Still, Morrissey's loyalty to the party deepened. He took up a position as a member of the Muslim Brotherhood's Guidance Bureau. And in just one year, he'd pay for that allegiance with his first prison sentence. Mubarak would do anything to stop Egypt from having a fair election. Even back in 2006, when we were protesting against his vote tampering and corruption, even after two judges suspected it also and said so publicly, Mubarak made his men come down on us with their fists and their clubs. Mubarak's cronies injured 180 of us from the Brotherhood and arrested nearly 500 more myself included. But that wouldn't be the last time I'd get arrested. In 2011, we stood with our fellow Egyptians once more during the Arab Spring. Tens of thousands of people in the streets demanding Mubarak's resignation. The air about this protest was different. This time, it felt like the people had the power. If protesters could get Tunisia's President Zin al-Abidin ben Ali to flee, then why couldn't the same be done against President Hosni Mubarak? The Egyptians were inspired. But Mubarak wouldn't go easily. In what became known as the Battle of the Camels of Tahrir Square, his supporters charged at our peaceful protesters. Terrifying. In the first days of the uprising, Mubarak had his men arrest me and other members of the Muslim Brotherhood on the false accusation that we incited the protests. We were sent to Wadi al-Natrun prison north of Cairo, where they sent all the Islamist brothers they wanted to silence. But after what happened that night, without a shadow of a doubt, I knew that God was on our side. It was the middle of the night, and we could hear the sound of men yelling outside our cell. Suddenly, the door to our cell burst open. There was a rush of air as everyone escaped. I couldn't work out what had happened. Who had opened the cell doors? Where was everyone going? Was this a trick? I refused to follow the herd. So I didn't. I just stayed there. Hello? Is this Al Jazeera? Mubashir TV? 
The prison break at Wadi al-Natrun was massive. Thousands of prisoners escaped. Among them were members of Hamas and Hezbollah, as well as activists with the Muslim Brotherhood. After he made the phone call, Morsi was nowhere to be found. It took 18 days of mass demonstrations across Egypt before President Hosni Mubarak finally stepped down. In an effort to gain the trust of the people and to show their support for new democratic elections, the Muslim Brotherhood issued a statement promising that the organization would not field nor support a candidate for the presidency. With Mubarak gone, we had an opportunity to build a new Egypt. But to do that, we knew we needed our own political party. And we needed to nominate a candidate to run for president. Well, that didn't last very long. Well, to the last moment, the Muslim Brotherhood maintained it would not run for presidency. But people started coming to us and begging us to run, telling us the revolution was being stolen. We couldn't let the old guard retake power. Mubarak was finally out. We didn't have to just settle for running as independence in parliament anymore. We could be the real thing. We called our party the Freedom and Justice Party. I was appointed as the party's president. But who would be the face of the party? Who would we want to represent us to the people of Egypt? We nominated Khairat al-Shadr. He had just as much political experience as me, but he was better known by Egyptians. El-Shatr was a very rich businessman, the group's financier and its longtime chief whip. El-Shatr had also recently been in deep trouble. On April 14, 2012, the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces, the military body that temporarily ruled over Egypt and oversaw the electoral process, announced that al-Shatter was disqualified from running because he had only been released from prison the year before. The Freedom and Justice Party had to name a new candidate or risk forfeiting their right to field one altogether. Settle, everyone. Settle. We have to nominate a new candidate and we have to do it quickly. The clock's ticking. Someone hand me the roster. Hassan. No, no, too quiet. Saad? No, he's too polite. We need someone who's going to shake things up. Come on, guys. Is this really everyone we have to represent us? Wait. Why are you looking at me like that? And that is how you earn a nickname like the spare tire. It's 2012, and for the first time, Egyptians were finally able to freely and democratically elect their leader. The votes went through two rounds, and then came down to Ahmad Shafiq, part of Mubarak's old guard, and Mohamed Morsi. To members of the foreign press, Morsi presented himself as a pro-democracy social conservative. But when he campaigned for supporters, he'd often present a very different point of view. I felt like a celebrity on tour. The energy at the rallies was unlike anything I had ever experienced. 
That was thanks in no small part to my hype man, a spirited... Some might say aggressive. ...cleric named Safwat Hegazi. Boy, could he rile up a crowd. We were at a rally in Al Mahalla, an industrial agricultural city in the Nile Delta. The men there were mainly working class. I told them how we had to work together to protect our Islamic values and our way of life. We have to work together to protect our values. And to that end, no woman nor non-Muslim should be allowed to serve as Egypt's president in the future. As our dear brother Cleric Hegazi said, we want everything. We want parliament, we want the presidency, we want cabinets and ministries. We want everything to be Islamic, according to our way of life. Our principles, our morality, even the drainage system. <laughs> our Islamic thought and fundamental beliefs for all. One day, he says he's for Egyptians of all stripes. The next, he's pushing through a way of life based on Islamic principles. The campaigning continued, and by June 2012, the results of the election were announced. I won. I won. I won. I won. We won. Our supporters showed up to prove the strength of our faith and our community. Hold up. Actually, he squeaked by with just 51.7% of the vote. It may have been tight, but it's the only free and fair election in Egypt's history. And we won it. Morsi's opponents made their objections known at the Egyptian Election Authority's press conference shortly after the announcement was made. What Morsi also doesn't reveal is that his rival, Ahmad Shafiq, was a holdover from Mubarak's regime. Shafiq shared much of the same policies as his predecessor, the man the country had just forced out of office. So as far as the Egyptian voter population was concerned, democracy or not, all the people were left with was a choice between who they thought was the lesser of two evils. My family, we are all Egyptians, all Muslims and Christians, with great civilizations. And that is how we will remain. We will fight all those who try to interfere with our unity. We will have to show the world we will have a revolution of development and to restore peace and dignity for all Egyptians. I am willing and determined to deliver a new Egypt and build a new democracy. Just like that, I was in a position to influence everything. The economy, foreign policy, our society's morality. But I needed to act quickly. I needed to make up for lost time. One of the first things I did to protect Egyptians was to introduce new taxes on goods like petrol, 
cooking oil, cigarettes, and that most unholy ruiner of men, alcohol. I tax them at a premium so as to preserve the nation's economy and the physical and spiritual health of our people. A frenzy of panic runs to liquor stores and gas stations ensued. Later that same evening, Morrissey rescinded his new decree via social media at two o'clock in the morning. The new taxes are now canceled. You're welcome. While Morrissey continued to flex his newfound authority, behind closed doors, he had a problem. Members of state institutions didn't want to be ruled by the Brotherhood. Morsi had failed to take control of the police and the judiciary, but he was also naive, especially when it came to the military. In one of the few truly politically driven moves Morsi made in his early presidential career, he appointed a non-Brotherhood member, Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, to the position of defense minister and commander of the armed forces. It was Morsi's attempt to assuage any fears that he planned to turn Egypt into a fully Islamist nation and he trusted el-Sisi. But by the fall of 2012, only four short months into his presidency, it was painfully evident that his plan lacked popular support and clarity. To many, the Egyptian people's dream of democracy didn't seem possible under Morsi's rule, and powerful forces from within felt someone needed to step in. That Sisi is a trickster. He was trying to put all these rules in place to limit my abilities to change the Constitution. But what he didn't know was that me and my brothers were working on a new Constitution. That's not exactly how Constitutions work, but hey. In November of 2012, Morsi granted himself far-reaching political powers, basically putting himself in complete control until the Brotherhood had drafted a new Constitution. But ushering in a new constitution would require a referendum. So Morsi had the military guard national institutions and polling places until the Brotherhood had finalized their draft. Morsi proved he was not above using martial law to get his way. And again, for many, this was not the type of government the Egyptian people fought for in their revolution. Critics openly condemned Morsi for his policies and accused him of wanting to impose an Islamic vision on Egypt. So the opposition mobilized while tens of thousands of Egyptians across the country raised their voices in protest. Many of those protesters made their way to the presidential palace itself. They were calling me Mubarak in the streets. How could they compare me to that dictator? I was only trying to lead these people towards the righteous path. I couldn't leave. I couldn't go outside. But then, somebody rushed the palace entrance. Help! Help! My God, someone control those people! Morsi's supporters descended on peaceful protesters with great force, even holding some protesters prisoner for hours while pressuring them to confess that they had been paid to oppose him. Morsi would fervently deny any allegations that he or the members of the Brotherhood had anything to do with inciting violence that day. For a large number of Egyptians, these events only strengthened the impression that, left to his devices, 
Morsi intended to lead the country down a slippery slope, much like the one they'd been down with Mubarak. I heard millions were protesting across the country. And by the thousands, they were marching back to Tahrir Square. This time, they were opposing me, of all people. My God. I used to love being part of those protests when I was down there. But things look very different from the presidential palace. What a shame these protests fell on such a special day for me. June 30th, 2013. The one-year anniversary of my being sworn in as president. Instead of celebrations, I got demonstrations. On July 1st, 2013, the Egyptian armed forces, with General Abdel Fattah el-Sisi at the helm, took to nationwide TV and radio. El-Sisi gave Morsi an ultimatum. Submit to the people's demands within 48 hours or face military intervention. I wasn't going to cave in to any threats and neither were my brothers. Not when we were already under attack. Mobs were slinging Molotov cocktails at the Brotherhood's headquarters and buildings around Cairo. Those army generals kept denying they were planning to take me down. But that's exactly what they were doing. Why else would they have given me the impossible task of quashing seven months of resistance in two days? They might as well have put a target on my forehead. Of course, after Sisi announced this, Everyone in Egypt thought the military was with them and against me. The Brotherhood had waited more than 80 years to finally have this kind of influence in Egypt. And we did so at the ballot box. I was not going to give up that easily. It was time for me to make my own statement. I denounce any declaration that would deepen division or threaten the social peace of this country. The civil democratic Egyptian state is one of the most important achievements of January 25th revolution. To make a bad situation worse, Morsi suffered further humiliation as uncertainty about his leadership from within his own party led to a chain of resignations. On July 3rd, 2013, Morsi's 48 hours were finally up. As many suspected, El-Sisi had every intention of overthrowing him. With millions of protesters still out in the streets across Egypt, General El-Sisi ordered his men to crush pro-Morsi supporters and rush the presidential palace to arrest the president, along with other prominent leaders affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood. Unconstitutional. I'm the elected president of Egypt. Morsi was arrested and immediately placed in military custody. Meanwhile, El Sisi's crackdown on protesters, particularly Islamists and generally anyone who seemed anti-military, turned into a massacre. Potentially worse even than anything that had happened when Mubarak was in power. According to Human Rights Watch, General El-Sisi's coup claimed at least 904 lives. 
My trial was a joke. Actually, make that trials, plural. They had no grounds to arrest me. I refused to acknowledge the court's authority. I was going to keep screaming to anyone who would listen. I am Egypt's legitimate president. I am the president of the republic. I guess they didn't like that. They called me disruptive. But I had to be. Their accusations were outrageous. They wanted to sentence me to death over my supposed role in Wadi al-Natrun prison break, which I had nothing to do with. I was not going to be quiet while they slung false accusations at me just to keep extending my time in jail. Well, after that, they built a soundproof cage in the courtroom for me to sit behind. Imagine the indignity. The president being caged like an animal. You wouldn't even imagine how they were treating me in between court appearances. It was pure torture. I spent the majority of my time in prison in solitary confinement. In six years, I saw my family three times. I didn't have access to lawyers or doctors. I begged them for my diabetes medication, but they ignored me like I was nothing. After 30 years of oppression, Mubarak got to resign and flee. But me? After only a year as an elected official, I was being subjected to slow and deliberate torture. However imperfect Morsi was as president, human rights organizations the world over agreed that his punishment long and drawn out as it was, wasn't justified in the first place. If anything, his treatment seemed to be a measure to ensure almost certain death of his political party and their aspirations. My left eye had stopped doing its only job. I could no longer see. I didn't know where I was. What was with all the steel and glass? My reflection was making me dizzy. The lights started getting brighter. I stood at the end carrying all the pain in the world. But my feet could barely hold me up. They did everything to silence me. On June 17th, 2019, at 67 years old, Morsi fainted behind the walls of the soundproof cage where he was being held during courtroom proceedings. He was taken to hospital where he reportedly died of heart failure. Human Rights Watch called Morsi's death terrible, but entirely predictable. After Morsi was removed from power, General Abdel Fateh el-Sisi led a countrywide crackdown on Morsi supporters and once again, the Muslim Brotherhood was outlawed. El-Sisi became president of Egypt, where he continues to suppress anyone who dares speak out. And for the people of Egypt, their first experience with democracy fell far short of their hopes and expectations.
Hindsight is a historical drama podcast. The preceding episode was based on historical events, archival interviews, and new conversations with people close to the subject. Hindsight is an Al Jazeera original podcast produced by Kelly and Kelly. Their team, series director Chris Kelly, series producer Lauren Berkovich and Michael Tanko-Grand, executive producers Chris Kelly and Pat Kelly. This episode is written by Lima Alize. Mohamed Morsi is played by Rod Rawi. This episode is narrated by me, Carmel Amit. Editing and sound design by Paul Tedeschini. Associate producer, Nessa Arif. Translation by Abdallah Al-Musalam. Joe DeFrias is Al Jazeera's executive producer for this series. Fact-checking by Joy Lee. Script editing by Danello Havaleshka. Al Jazeera's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. <laughs>